Welcome to our continued look at the race for the White House with Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, In the Arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simondon. In the final 60 days of the election, my colleagues and I pause each Thursday to dissect election developments and take a closer look at 2016 battlegrounds. In our three-part podcast this week, Real Clear's polling expert, David Byler, will dissect the numbers race with Kyle Condick of Larry Sabato's election site, Crystal Ball, while congressional correspondent James Arkin interviews Kevin McLaughlin, Deputy Executive Director of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, about this year's important Senate contests. In our Battlegrounds segment, Bureau Chief Carl Cannon interviews veteran Republican campaign advisor Roger Stone, and I talk with Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn, a Democrat, to gauge the political dynamics in Florida, where 29 electoral votes could determine the 45th president. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up, we have David Byler talking with Crystal Ball's Kyle Condit. So this week, I have Kyle Condit here with me, and we're going to talk about the Electoral College. And I'm really excited because we have a great guest here who has a lot of insights into this topic. Kyle Kondik is the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is a must-read publication run by Professor Larry Sabato out at the University of Virginia. Kyle has a great new book out called The Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President, which I highly recommend. You should also follow him on Twitter. His handle is at KKondik, that's K-K-O-N-D-I-K, and he posts all sorts of smart and insightful commentary there. Thanks for coming on the show, Kyle. David, thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of you and Sean Trendy and the rest of the Rookler Politics team, and so I'm, I'm honored to be with you. Oh, well, great. The respect is mutual. It's just a mutual. love fest here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay, so before we get into the questions, I'm going to give just a basic 30-second explanation of the Electoral College. Basically, every state has a certain number of electoral votes that's roughly proportional to its population. So a really big, populous state like California gets 55 electoral votes, while a more rural state like Wyoming gets only three. In almost every state, the candidate who wins statewide gets all of the electoral votes. So whoever wins California gets 55 electoral votes. And if a candidate gets 270 or more, he or she wins the presidency. That's the basic gist of it. So, Kyle. Election watchers constantly talk about the Electoral College and how each candidate can carve out a path to 270. But I want to sort of frame the question a little bit differently. I've got kind of two parts to it, and we're going to focus on Hillary Clinton first. So the first part is basically how does Hillary Clinton get to 270? What uh, regions, what states are important? Um, just if you could sketch out a path, that would be great. And the second part is sort of I want to know what that arrangement of states means. If you're looking at a winning Hillary Clinton electoral map, uh, what does that tell us about her coalition, about the people who decided that she should be the president? So uh, American politics and presidential elections can kind of be looked at as a battle of the coasts versus the south, as sort of the basis of the two parties. And so the Northeast, so New England, uh, you know, Massachusetts, New York, uh, Maine, Vermont, uh, New Jersey, sort of stretching down in the mid-Atlantic. That's a very solidly democratic area. It used to be, you know, 100, 120 years ago, 
it was a really Republican region. Now, I would not say that it was a conservative region back then, but it was Republican. And, uh, and they sort of that, that strong Democratic Northeast or that strong kind of progressive Northeast added to it the West Coast as sort of their part of their uh, alliance. Uh, Colin Woodard has this book called American Nations. He talks about these various coalitions, basically. He sort of presents politics at the, the New England area with its allies on the West Coast versus essentially the Deep South. So the Deep South 120 years ago was conservative Democratic, now is conservative Republican for the most part. And so Clinton's path to victory, I think, starts with making sure she has the West Coast on lockdown. So California, Oregon, Washington, all states that vote much more Democratic than the national average in recent years. Hawaii is also a part of that. And then you add to that New England. So basically the only competitive state in New England mostly is New Hampshire. And I think New Hampshire actually has been trending Democratic over time. It actually voted for John Kerry in 2004 even as George W. Bush was carrying the, you know, winning that election. So New England right now looks pretty solidly Democratic, and so that's the Democratic base. And then adding to that, typically the, the sort of Yankee West Coast coalition has allies in the Midwest. Minnesota is a pretty Democratic state. You'd expect that one to vote Democratic in this election. Wisconsin and Michigan, so sort of the upper Midwest, which have generally a bit more of a progressive political tradition than other states in the Midwest. She's favored in all in, in all yeah. of those states. And Illinois, too. Illinois used to be one of the great swing states, the great bellwether states. Now it's very much a Democratic state, mostly because Chicago and, and greater Chicago has trended so hard Democratic over time, and, and Chicago and its suburbs dominate that state. So the, the Clinton map is very much what you might be familiar with in recent history. It's probably the Northeast, solidly, the West Coast, solidly, and a lot of the Midwest. And then the, the clearest path to me that she has is to add states like Pennsylvania, Colorado, and Virginia. All of them are fairly educated states, particularly amongst the white electorate. And, and, and Clinton is generally doing better amongst college-educated whites, and Democrats typically do. And so, um, you know, we at our uh, UVA Center for Politics, Crystal Ball Map, we have... 273 electoral votes, so a bare majority, as leaning as as at least likely or safe rated for Clinton. So even if she were to lose places like Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Iowa, Nevada, she could still say stay solid and win the election if she just holds on to those likely and safe seats. And that includes again, in terms of the most competitive states, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Virginia, uh, Colorado, and Wisconsin. I would like to kind of turn the question now to Donald Trump and sure. kind of make it basically the same question. If Donald Trump has a path to 270 electoral votes, what does it look like? And also the question of what does it mean? Because, you know, you've written really well on this about kind of the changing Republican Party, the changing sure. coalitions. Basically, if we see a path to 270 for Trump, what is it? And what's it mean? So the Republican Party's strength lies again in the Deep South. So the Deep South traditionally defined is includes South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And really, Trump is Georgia seems to be somewhat close, but I'd be pretty surprised if Georgia ultimately voted Democratic in this election. So you start with the Deep South. You add to it states like Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, West Virginia, sort of 
places that are uh, kind of, some of them are kind of more Appalachian than Southern, uh, but a lot of those places are pretty culturally conservative, uh, generally identify more with the Republican Party these days. And so uh, that whole swath of states from basically from the Appalachians to the Ozarks and like Arkansas and Oklahoma, those states are very solidly Republican. Of course, Texas is the second largest state. Texas has been very reliably Republican. Uh, and despite some polls that have shown that state close, again, it'd be shocking if, if Texas voted for, uh, voted for Hillary Clinton unless the national election really got away from Trump. So you start with that kind of southern Appalachian base, which is the traditional center of the Republican Party. One thing that distinguishes that region from other regions is that it is heavily evangelically, evangelical Christian, and a lot of those voters have become very Republican over time and very conservative. You add to that kind of the interior West and the Great Plains, so states like Nebraska and Kansas and Montana and the Dakotas and Utah. Uh, those states are all pretty reliably Republican. Again, Trump has shown a little bit more weakness in some of those states than Republicans typically do, but... He looks, he looks real, uh, to me, he looks pretty solid in all those places. And so then where do you add? And so you go to the Midwest, um, Missouri is a state that like Illinois, I mentioned was kind of a classic bellwether state for much of the 20th century. Missouri has trended Republican. I think part of it is that it used to have these kind of rural Southern Democrats who are not really, really Democrats anymore. Mm -hmm. And while, uh, while Missouri does have two decent sized cities in Kansas City and uh, St. Louis, those cities don't pack enough electoral punch to cancel out the rest of the state. So it's kind of like almost the opposite of Illinois. Chicago dominates Illinois to the point where it's now Democratic. Missouri, it's more like St. Louis and Kansas City aren't Democratic enough and don't cast a big enough share of the vote to cancel out the rest of the state, which is almost all the other counties are going to be red on Election Day. So you take Missouri, which... Some people argue it's a southern state. Some argue it's a midwestern state. Reasonable people can disagree on that. But um, So you add Missouri to that sort of southern coalition. And then Indiana is a state that always has been the most, or always, but not, not always, but for the most part has been the most conservative Republican state in the Midwest, generally more evangelical Christian than the rest of the Midwest, not particularly diverse. So Indiana and Missouri are must-win states for Trump. And then you add, look at a state like Ohio. Ohio is, is I, I look at it kind of as the, the gateway to the Midwest for Republicans besides Indiana. Uh, and if, if Republicans can't win Ohio historically, they, they typically can't win a Michigan or a Pennsylvania or a Minnesota or a Wisconsin or even an Iowa. So I think Ohio is a must-win for Republicans. Uh, in my book, The Bellwether, I note how Republicans have never won a presidential election without it. Uh, there have been 40 presidential elections since 1856, which is the start of the Republican versus Democratic era. Uh, the winners carried Ohio in 35 of them. The five times it didn't, the state voted for a losing Republican over a winning Democrat. Uh, and again, Ohio typically votes very close to the national average, uh, but it, um, uh, it's, it's a state that... Uh, typically leans a little bit Republican if it leans one way at all. Additionally, Ohio's electorate has a higher percentage of non-college educated whites than some of the, than some of the other uh, key swing states. And that's generally demographic that's a little bit better for Trump. So I fully expect Trump to do better in Ohio than he does nationally. But I also think it's pretty likely that Ohio ends up voting for the winner um, unless the election is like super duper close. So, um, so you look at Ohio and I also think Florida, and you know, Florida is a lot different than Ohio. It, it is a very old state, but it's also a very diverse state. 
Um, Florida is another state that typically votes close to the national average, but is a little bit more Republican than the national average. And so you could come up with an electoral college map for, for Trump that doesn't include Florida, but I don't think it would make much sense. Like I really think that, that Trump, so Trump starts with Romney's 206. Mm -hmm. I would say 191 of those votes are pretty solid for him. The only one that's not is, uh, is North Carolina which is uh, 15 electoral votes and I think in some ways is trending Democratic. Um, I think that Trump needs to win North Carolina, Florida, and Ohio, which is kind of putting the old George W. Bush map together. But then that gets him to, let me do the math in my head, uh, Romney was 206, Florida is 29, that gets you to 235, yep. Ohio is 18, it gets you to 253. So then you need to find 17 more electoral votes. Where do you go? Right. Uh, Pennsylvania is the most obvious place because it's got 20. So you win Pennsylvania, that's it. You win the election with the rest of those states. Uh, but Clinton's lead has been holding up pretty well in, in Pennsylvania, even in a time of of, of, of polls sort of moving toward Trump. There was just one out uh, over the Labor Day weekend that had uh, Clinton up eight in Pennsylvania, and that's generally where her lead has been. So then maybe you look at Iowa and Nevada, two states where Trump has been polling pretty well. Um, and I think part of it is sort of the, the education levels in those states are uh, generally a little bit lower. Uh, and I think, again, that's been helpful to Trump. I think that uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of people who don't have a college degree have not been doing all that well in the economy. Um, so maybe some of those states. So if you get Iowa, that's six. Nevada, that's six. That's uh, that gets you to uh, 265, and then you need to find one other state, and maybe it's a Wisconsin, or uh, you know, again, Pennsylvania would obviously do it. Uh, or a Colorado or a Virginia, but those states have generally been polling pretty well for Democrats to the point where Hillary Clinton hasn't even been advertising in those places. So, uh, so, and you know, what would, what would, if Trump win, what would that wins? What would that tell us? Um, you know, I think that his electoral map would basically be some kind of version of George W. Bush's. I don't think it would be all that dramatically different. Um, and like, you know, Bush won, uh, Bush won Nevada twice. Uh, Bush did win Iowa in 2004, uh, but not in 2000. Uh, and so you could probably get Clinton to a, or Bush to a victory if he basically just wins uh, some states that Bush won at least once. Although I think maybe to make the math work, um, uh, Trump would have to win a, a state that voted for Carrier Gore. So maybe a Pennsylvania or a Wisconsin. But generally speaking, I think if you look at this, this map, Overall, I think you see a pretty high level of stability. You know, maybe Virginia and Colorado might be trending a little bit more Democratic, maybe in Iowa trending a little bit more Republican, or maybe even in Ohio. But I don't think we're going to see dramatic changes. And I mean, yeah, could Hillary Clinton carry Utah or something? Yeah, if she's winning by 10 points nationally. But, um, but I think the battleground states are still about what we're, we've been used to. Okay. So imagine that you, Cal Condic, are doing your exact same job, but instead of in the 2010s, you're in the 1970s. And, you know, say it's September 1976, and yeah. you're looking at maps and figures and numbers and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. But then, I don't know what, you go into a coma or you take a vacation from politics for 40 years or something yeah. like that. You come back, it's September 2016, you start looking at maps, you start looking at polls. Uh, what are the big trends 
from the past. The second part of the, the question is, you know, is suppose you win the lottery tomorrow and you decide to go live in Barbados for 20 years uh -huh. and you come back in 2036, sure. what do you expect to see? Oh, it's a great question uh, and very interesting. And so one of the things that I think would be surprising is how, how Republican the South has become because, you know, we think of the, the you know, the South was very Democratic before Barry Goldwater and the civil rights legislation 1964 and LBJ, and then very Republican after. And it's a much more complicated story than that, as, as I think Sean Trendy and others have written yeah. about in a, in a pretty compelling way. You know, you could start to see the erosion of the Democratic Solid South even by the end of World War II. And of course, you have Eisenhower and, and sort of you see, start to see some more changes. And I mean, the, the 64 election was really important, but there were changes before that and then there were changes after it to the point where, you know, in 76, Jimmy Carter, an evangelical Democrat from the South, swept the South, except for Virginia. He won all the southern states and he won all the border states, so Missouri and Kentucky and uh, West Virginia. And yet uh, the West, uh, uh, Carter did not win a state uh, a state west of Texas except for Hawaii. So the West Coast was very, uh, you know, w was, was pretty competitive back then. And so I think that, that the, the annihilation of the Democrats in the South would be surprising if you had just been following this stuff up to 1976, because at that point the South probably still looked kind of competitive. Uh, and then also the, um, the basically eradication of the Republican Northeastern moderates you know, a state like Vermont voted Democratic once from 1856 to 1988, and that was in the 64 wave. Now, it was starting to trend Democratic, but now it's like one of the most Democratic states in the country, and a lot of the other northeastern states have trended that way, too. Uh, so this sort of sorting out would have been uh, kind of surprising. And, you know, California looked like a classic swing state back then, or maybe even a Republican-leaning one. Uh, and then, you know, now it's, of course, very Democratic. So I think all those things... Uh, would have been surprising, although one thing that I think has stayed fairly steady is that the Midwest has kind of been a swing region in that, and particularly a state like Ohio, uh, but also, um, you know, Michigan, I think, very narrowly voted for Ford in 76. Michigan's more Democratic now, I think. Um, but a number of those states, uh, you know, continue to be pretty competitive and have sort of stayed that way. Um, now, going forward, I think what, what the trends in American politics tell us is that so as the country, the country may be becoming more diverse, and therefore maybe you see states like North Carolina and Georgia that not only are becoming more diverse, but also are attracting a lot of white-collar um, you know, workers from the north that are sort of changing some of those places, like a Raleigh-Durham or a Charlotte or an Atlanta. Uh, and I think you also have some African-Americans sort of who, you know, their ancestors moved north. Maybe some of them are moving back south now. Um, for all sorts of reasons. And so maybe you start to see uh, an electorate or de the Democrats sort of become very strong just all along the Atlantic with Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, maybe South Carolina, Florida. But then maybe the interior of the country maybe starts to become more Republican because it's more white. So that's a world in which, you know, Ohio maybe doesn't, isn't quite as good of a bellwether because it, it's, it's, it's whiter than the rest of the nation. And so maybe it starts to trend Republican. Maybe a state like a Pennsylvania, which I think had sort of been giving some small indications it was trending Republican um, before Trump got the nomination. Maybe a Michigan or a Wisconsin or a Minnesota. But you also then would have to envision a world in which you have a political alliance between 
the traditionally progressive states of the, of the upper Midwest and the deeply conservative South. And that is a tricky one to, to figure. Yeah. So, um, but that would, th that to me makes the most sense, but that also assumes that you continue to have robust two-party competition in the United States, which we generally have had. Um, but I think some Democrats are hopeful that they can just sort of add more states to their coalition than they lose and that the Democrats sort of become the majority party, um, which is how it is in some countries. You know, you, you do have a distinct majority party and a minority party, um, but that's not what we have in the United States right now, and that's not necessarily what I predict. I think the, um, I think the future, you know, I, I, I think they're going to, particularly if Trump loses, there are going to be a lot of people saying, oh, the Republican Party is cooked. And I, I agree that they, the party would have a lot of things to figure out, but, you know, it's very easy to imagine them coming back and having a great midterm as the out party generally does against the, the president's party. Uh, and then, you know, they have to maybe figure out what they do for 2020. And again, this assumes that Trump loses, although the party may have an identity crisis even if Trump wins, uh, because Trump may signal that, um, that the party itself is changing and maybe is becoming even more reliant on uh, kind of uh, downscale whites, basically. Uh, and the Republicans still have this problem with, with, with non-white voters. So, um, you know, again, I think maybe maybe the, the idea of whiter areas becoming more Republican, uh, more diverse areas, growing areas becoming more Democratic, that sort of makes the most sense to me. But, um, you know, if you had told someone in 1976, oh, yeah, California and Vermont are going to be two of the most Democratic states in the country, uh, and the Deep South is going to never vote Democratic, you know, that might have seemed pretty odd, too. So... Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I appreciate you venturing a guess on those questions because yeah. long-term predictions in American politics are really difficult. So, yeah, yeah you talking it, through those trends is really and helpful. It, and I think, it, I think what it does is uh, um, I, I think it prompts someone to try to be pretty humble about this. I think we yeah. could sort of fall into – and I, th this is also a lesson from the Trump nomination, which you know, I basically missed and I think many others did. Um, that, you know, you, th you think you've got a handle on what it takes to win a nomination and you sort of stick to that even when the evidence starts to be contrary and then you end up not being right. Now, congressional reporter James Arkin leads our Newsmaker segment with Senate race insights from the NRSC's Kevin McLaughlin. I'm Real Clear Politics reporter James Arkin, sitting down here at the headquarters of the National Republican Senatorial Committee with Deputy Executive Director Kevin McLaughlin, and we're here to talk about the battle for the uh, Senate majority this year. And so, Kevin, it's uh, you know it's the Wednesday after Labor Day. This is you know when when the fall campaign officially kicks off. We got the final couple weeks sprint. Uh, we know where the map was at the beginning of the cycle. Republicans with a four-seat majority, but defending 24 seats. Uh, Senate, uh, Democrats only defending 10 seats this cycle. So the map was kind of tough for you guys from the start. Give me your assessment of where things stand right now in terms of trying to keep the majority, where you think the, the sort of, how many states are in play at this point and, and where you guys are. Yep, yep. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate it. Always enjoy the opportunity to preach the gospel. Um, so, listen, walking into this cycle, uh, we are under no illusions of the map and the challenges that lay before us. And I think if you would have told me two years ago or a year and a half ago, whatever you want to use for your time frame, that we would, I would be in this situation currently where I am with all the atmospherics going on out there, I would have taken it every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Hands down, no question. We're in great shape. Um, and so 
I think that is due in part, uh, not in part, in large part, if not solely, because we have great candidates and campaigns. Yeah, and it's an interesting where, you know, in the primary, we were talking so much about outsiders and people kind of looking for something different in Washington. Obviously, most of these races were looking at Republican incumbents, except for Nevada being the one where it's an, an open seat. And it seems like, for the most part, these incumbents have been able to kind of weather the uh, the sort of cry for outside Washington, and, and most of them are still in a pretty competitive position. Why is that? I mean, how has a group of people who have been in Washington for six years now been able to be partially successful to this point in a year where people want an outsider? Well, I think you, you, you take it on a case-by-case -case basis, but by and large, I remember sitting down in January of 2015 and looking at, at our incumbents. And we knew that given the map that you alluded to earlier, the, the, there was only really one or two benefits that we had going into this cycle. One of them I mentioned are candidates. We had, thought we had great, better candidates and great candidates. We didn't know better candidates at the time. But the other thing we knew we had is time. Uh, I always say this election cycle is proof that God has a sense of humor because it's the exact inverse of last cycle. So, you know, it's down to the screws. It is the exact same thing, just on its head. So we knew uh, the, the amazing amount of work that Democrats had ahead of them. We knew how hard it was to recruit candidates in so many races. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of manpower. And so we didn't have that problem. Our team was on the floor, kind of like in Hoosiers, you know. And so um, we knew that we needed to make the best use of our time. And so our folks, you know, uh, in Ohio, uh, Portman, for example, you know, he started knocking doors in March of 2015, maybe. Toomey's not much different. Ayotte's not much different. I mean, people were doing the blocking and tackling months and years before anyone knew about it, heard about it, said anything, or did anything. And that's going to make a huge difference come election day. And so the blocking and tackling, you know, a big deal, and it seems like it's put you guys in a, in a position to weather what's been a, a really interesting, bizarre, kind of unpredictable cycle. But as we stand here right now, you know, if, if the election were held today, I mean, Roger Wicker, the, the chairman of the NRSC, just said a couple of minutes ago that if the election were held today, Demo uh, Republicans would keep the majority. But if we look at the polling in some of these competitive states, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, um, you know, Indiana, Wisconsin, Illinois, Democrats are leading in those five states. That right there is enough for them to take back the majority. I mean, if it were held today or if things held steady where they are right now, do you think that you're in a position to take the majority or would you lose it by a slim margin? I think that uh, I would totally agree with the chairman. The, the one state you forgot there is Nevada. We'd win Nevada today, which would put it at four, which would put it at 50-50, right. which is a tie, which obviously would break if they won the presidency, but it all depends on the presidency. But at the same time, I think, um, I think as of today, we would hold the majority. I'm not in like the prognostication business of 51, 52, 53, 54, whatever it is. I, you know, obviously all I care about is holding the majority. However, uh, there's a lot of game left. Uh, as you said earlier, this is kind of the official start of campaign season. I think it gets later and later actually every year. I kind of feel like in the techno technological age, it's kind of Columbus Day. People start to really, really dial in on this stuff. I know I sound like a broken record, but honestly, I think that we knew that these campaigns were going to be tight. We knew that we had a lot of challenges. But when you have tight campaigns, I think every single little everything, little thing you do can make a difference. And good, better candidates and better campaigns win tight tight races. But so on the other side, you know, talking to Democrats, they would say that in tight races that look like they're going to break by a, a point or two in some of these competitive states, the, the thing that would push one over the top is the presidential, is the mm -hmm. top of the ticket. And clearly, you, your candidates have had to struggle with 
you know, an unconventional top of the ticket and one that seems like it's dragging down Republican senators in, in a couple different states. I mean, most notably, I think, would be New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. Those are the two right now where it looks like Senator Toomey and Senator Ayotte are outpacing Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is losing those states by so much that the Democratic challengers are still ahead by a slim margin. I, I mean, how, how difficult has that been to plan for? And, and what have they been doing to to put themselves in that position to outrun the presidential candidate? And can that continue going into the fall? So I think Pennsylvania is a great example of, you know, uh, elections are not run in vacuums and there are two people at the top of the ticket. Public polling has Hillary Clinton's unfaves with independence at negative 38 in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. That is an astronomical number for her to overcome. And it's an astronomical number for Katie McGinty to overcome. I don't truly believe, the, I, I like historical data, I'm a historical data guy, particularly when I'm working on campaigns and, and working on, on vote goals and things like that, but one place where I don't really buy into historical data right now is, is the coattails or top of ticket effect. Because these campaigns on both the Democrat and Republican side are so big, so expensive, and so sophisticated, they by and large, we are not relying on anyone. That is the one thing to your point to your question is like what's making the difference. We, our candidates knew they couldn't rely on anyone, regardless of who's at the top of the ticket. In January of 2015, they were like, we are going to build self-sufficient, get out the vote effort, communication shops, political shops, everything is gonna be our own. And so that is a massive difference for us. You know, Rob Portman in, in uh, Ohio, Rob Portman has been IDing voters for, over two, for almost two years. He hasn't been IDing Republicans. He's IDing swing voters and Clinton Portman voters, and that's who he's talking to because he knew there weren't enough Republicans, additional Republicans, in a uh, in a presidential year in the state of Ohio to put him over the hump. He needs swing voters and Democrats, conservative-leaning Democrats. So he's been doing that, and when he wins by two or three points, everyone's going to remember this and say, "Wow, that was really smart that Portman did that." And you know that's what we've always thought. All the Portman, uh, Toomey, Ayotte. Always we're going to be close races. And I'd throw North Carolina in there. I know that everyone says that, like, oh, my gosh, it just came on board. That's just not true. Like, it's just not. We knew after last cycle and after looking at 2012 and 2008 that North Carolina is a purple state. And it's purpley red, I would say, actually. I'd say 2008 is the outlier. But it's a purple state. It's almost true. And, I, and you know, so, uh, you know, I really, really think that all of these states, we knew they were going to be incredibly close, regardless of what polls said a year ago. So with North Carolina, um, one thing, I think you're, you're right that a lot of the talk in the last couple of weeks has been North Carolina suddenly came on board. Uh, you know, I've talked to some, several different Republicans to say, well, that's not really true. Like you said, you know, you guys kind of expected a, a tough race there, or at least a somewhat competitive race. Um, but it, it has gained a lot of attention in the last couple of weeks. A lot of stories about Richard Burr not really beginning his campaign in a timely fashion. That he's talking about, you know, it's only going to be after Labor Day, and that the, uh, you know, Deborah Ross has gotten an advantage because of that because she's been out and he hasn't. And then also you talk about the top of the ticket in North Carolina and the fact that Hillary Clinton is spending a significant amount of money advertising in the state, and there hasn't to this point really been a lot of Republican money to counter that. I mean, it's, there's a lot of outside spending that's about to come into the state that's going to be the counter. But how, what's going to be sort of the breaking point for that race? Uh, how is Richard Burr going to be able to maintain a very slim lead if Donald Trump is truly struggling in a state that was a Republican state four years ago? Yeah, and I think that, you know, you look at um, the opportunity that um, 
victories, like, like Tom Tillis's victory has given us, and it's given us a roadmap of how to do that. Granted, it's a midterm versus a presidential, so I'm not sitting here comparing apples to apples, but you certainly have a roadmap and things you extrapolate out. We learned a lot from the loss in 2008 and the win in 2012. You know, it is a state where you have to have, uh, you have to uh, actively work early on to turn out voters. And now we've had a switch in the early voting, and so that throws a curveball into everything. Um, it's just a state where it is a um, it is a, a um, it is a, a blocking and tackling state. I'm sorry for reusing a term, but where you have to do the fundamentals well and turn out your people. It is a ground game state where you have to get people to the polls. And here's the other thing, Deborah Ross. Um, I know that people may say, oh, she's uh, got this great chance to win. Deborah Ross is a uh, Apple researcher's dream. Deborah Ross was the head of the ACLU for 12 years. She literally has represented people and argued for things that there is something for everyone in North Carolina. We can eat, touch each one of these people after 12 years. I think we have 46 boxes of th stuff she worked on at the ACLU from the Duke University Library. So we will be making that case. One of them is she loves flag burning. One of them is, is she argued against having a sex offenders registry list because it's unconstitutional or not fair to these sex offenders to let people know that they live in their neighborhood. There are things that, that people find ridiculous. One of my personal favorites is the fact that not once but twice as a state senator now, she introduced legislation to ban members of the military from going to bars in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm not sure if you've ever been in Wilmington, North Carolina, but there's probably about a half million veterans or active duty personnel who live there. She's done some strange things. We're looking forward to litigating that case. So, you, I mean, you say that it's a blocking and tackling state, that, right. it's, about, that it's about GOTV efforts, it's mm -hmm. about reaching your voters. Has he been doing that? Because the complaint we've seen from some Republicans in, in, a, in a few of these North Carolina stories in the past couple of weeks is that he hasn't been, and that there's been a real missed opportunity for him to get an earlier start in the way that Senator Portman did. I feel great about the way things are going in North Carolina. I feel like the RNC is doing a great job. I feel like the campaign is doing a good job. Could, could there always be more? Is there ever enough for a guy like me? There never, ever is. Senator Ayotte has you know, been criticized for what she said about Donald Trump in terms of the uh, support but not endorse. Uh, it's you know a lot of stories tying her to him, and it seems like there's been a real problem with the fact that he's losing the state by enough that she is still losing the state, even though she is out, outrunning him in the polls, as we've said. What does she need to do over the next eight or nine weeks? What changes for her to, to flip this so that she's winning by a slim margin in a state that's probably going to be within a point or two either way? I, I just think she needs to be her. I don't think there's a more relatable member, for sure, of our Republican caucus and maybe the entire United States Senate than Kelly Ayotte. She's a 40-something working mom of two preteens with a husband who's a small business owner who ha happens to be a landscaper and snow removal guy in New Hampshire. She's very, very... Um, she is very uh, known in, North, in New Hampshire, and uh, she fits the state well. Listen, all throughout 2014, everyone was telling me that beating incumbents is hard. You can't win the majority because you can't beat incumbents. And you know what? They're right. Beating incumbents is hard. And if it's, if it's true then, it's true now. And um, I think that you know, when you want to beat an incumbent, you've got to give them a reason. And they've tried to give a lot of reasons on why that Kelly Ayotte is not uh, fit to serve uh, New Hampshire, and they, they've never stuck because they know her. She has a very personal relationship with a large number of people in that state. And so that is also a state of fierce independence. And the last thing I'll say, and I know we're running short on time, is, and some more of a macro thought, is that I know folks like to talk about there's no ticket splitting anymore. And they always say there's no ticket splitting, so the Senate's over. And then they cite a statistic about House ticket splitting, about 9% of House races ticket split. 
but it's more like 22 to 25 percent of races over the last three presidential cycles have been ticket split. If we did 22 percent of our, of our races, 24 races, it's roughly five or six races where we need to have a ticket split. Ironically, Ohio, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, you throw in a, a fifth or a sixth, Florida, and that's what I'm talking about. Like we are in a great position uh, if you look at the numbers and you look at the data on all these states, and North, New Hampshire is one of them. But so talking about ticket splitting, I mean, we've, we've seen the evidence from political scientists that it's not what it used to be. Uh, you know, the, the numbers have consistently gone down. I think 2012 was the lowest that, that there's ever been in terms of splitting between presidential and, and Senate elections. Uh, you know, I've talked with a lot of people who say this is, a, this is a bizarre year. You can't really put the old models into how ticket splitting is going to happen. But, you know, if, if Donald Trump loses a state like New Hampshire by 10 points or close to that, you know, how, how much ticket splitting can there be to get enough voters who aren't supporting him? I mean, is 10 points really a surmountable number? Barack Obama lost North Dakota by 20. Senator Heitkamp. Barack Obama lost uh, Montana by, I think, 13. Senator Tester. Barack Obama lost uh, Missouri by 10, I think. Senator McCaskill. Um, so Barack Obama lost Indiana by 10 or 12. I can't remember exactly what it is. You have Senator Donnelly. I think that there is actually a roadmap. Those are red states where they overcame it. We're talking purple states. Mm -hmm. That's four states. So uh, absolutely. And ticket splitting, I guess my point is, is it might have been at its lowest level, but it was at 22% in 2012. I think it was 26 in 20 in 2008. And before that, it was actually right around, it's always been around 20, 25% in the last three presidential elections. Before that, it was like 35, 36% in whatever year that was. So yes, it's gone down, but it hasn't been the drastic drop off in the United States Senate races as it has been in House races. So, As you come down the wire, uh, I mean, we, we talked about the map is, is huge for you guys. You have yep. a lot of states, not all of them are competitive, mm -hmm. obviously. There's, there's a smaller number that are truly gonna be competitive. Sure. How difficult uh, is the decision-making process in terms of deciding where the investments need to go, how you're going to switch around your money in the last couple of weeks, where you feel like you can make the, the biggest gain based on making investments? And looking at the map as it stands right now, what states do you feel like you can make the, the biggest gain where you can kind of flip the polls back in your favor or widen the lead in your favor? It's always grueling anytime you make a decision uh, about resources. So the decisions are grueling and I wouldn't get into exactly what my plans would be or how I'm going to allocate those. You but can one get into state, your plans if you want to. <laughs> one state I would say just to keep your eyeball on, I'm not making any, any promises, all I'm saying is keep your eye on Indiana. You think that Evan buys lead in, in the polls that we've seen, which is, you know, he's had a, a pretty significant lead. You think that's artificial? It's not as big? It might be, it might be that big right now, uh, but I'm just saying keep an eye on Indiana. What about Indiana? Makes I just think Evan Bayh, for all the reasons the Democrats want to get him in, which I do not begrudge them whatsoever, are all the reasons he's a terrible candidate in 2016. He's a legacy candidate. He's a creature of Washington. He changed. He moved out of the state. He did some tomfoolery and skullduggery to get back on the ballot and not give the voters, the Hoosier voters, a say in who exactly their, uh, their, their candidate is. Um, he literally has uh, gone in the United States Senate and he has created problems for him to go out and make money on afterwards, speaking of Obamacare. And so everything that he has done in the last six years, and clearly quite candidly over the last 30 years of his life, is a liability for him right now. He doesn't even know his address in Indiana. He has no idea what it is. You talk to the, the utility people there, his, his, he doesn't use electricity at his, at his house there. He never lives there. 
I mean, it doesn't pass the smell test. I know people, I'm from Minnesota, so I know people in D.C. like to like scoff at us people in flyover country. But you know what? That dog won't hunt. If you have three multi-million dollar properties and want to look someone in the eye and tell them you live in a $53,000 condo most of the time. On the other side, we have a United States Marine, a guy who volunteered, who went to the Naval Academy, who served his country in, in, in Iraq. You know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a glaring difference between the two candidates, and I feel really, really good about our argument versus theirs. But your candidate is not very well known statewide. True. He's got a lot of ground to make up in that area. A lot of room to grow. Here's the other problem. 2016 Evan Bay is not 2004 Evan Bay. 2004 Evan Bay had a 74% fave on fave. His favorable rating was 74%. Now it was 55% when he got in. Granted, I'd kill for my candidates to have a 55% approval rating, but he doesn't have the goodwill back in Indiana that everyone thinks he did. All right, well, we're running short on time. One last <laughs> question, and I'm going to get you to give me a real quick answer on this. Yep. November 9th, we're looking at the map as it is now. When we're looking at it then, how many seats are Republicans going to hold in the Senate? We're going to have a majority. But you won't say I how many. I don't do numbers. We a will majority. have a majority. All right, well, yep. we're going to have to leave it there. Kevin McLaughlin, thanks a bunch for joining me. You're a gentleman. Thank you, sir. Finally, Carl interviews Roger Stone while I talk with Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn about Battleground, Florida. I don't think there's a good path, an easy path for a Republican nominee without Florida. Is that still, has Trump changed that equation or do you think that's still the way it is? No, I think that's still the way it is, although uh, Pennsylvania now looks like it is uh, a real possibility for Trump. Uh, but Pennsylvania has proven to be the fool's gold of Republican presidential politics now for several cycles. Uh, McCain and Romney, for example, spent huge resources there and both lost them. So I don't see how Trump becomes president without winning the Sunshine State. He's not polling well yet with Hispanics, with Latinos, especially non-Cubans. I'm talking about Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. Um, can he carry Florida doing poorly among Hispanics? Um, and if and if not, is what's he going to do to address that? Well, the uh, most recent Florida Chamber of Commerce poll, which I have some experience with and some confidence in, based over their long-term use of methodology, has Trump ahead, even with an anemic showing among Hispanic voters. Uh, there's no question that he has to and can improve his standing there substantially. The key to that, based on all of the survey research I have seen, uh, is more discussion of his job creation program, in essence, his tax reform plan, which is very dynamic and very pro-growth. The Hispanic community in Florida is very um, job-sensitive as an issue, opportunity-sensitive. Uh, I've had very prominent Democratic consultants in Florida asked me why Trump is not talking about that more. Uh, I will, I hope that he will do so. Let's stay with Florida for one, for one minute. What's happened in the last four years? You know, this, it's the classic swing state, but what's gone on there in the last four years that other than, his, you know, the growth of the Puerto Rican community that could, that has changed the electorate, that's changed the dynamic that would help or hurt, or hurt Trump? Well, it's important to understand that the general election electorate in, say, a gubernatorial year is somewhat different than a presidential year. In presidential years, the state will pull out uh, a larger percentage of the minority community, both uh, black and Hispanic. 
at the same time, under Rick Scott, the, improved, the economy has steadily improved. And I, I think that helps Trump to some extent. Uh, but this is, you're right. This is in, in presidential years, this is the classic purple state. Roger, back in 2010, I was down in Florida, and you were the first person of either party and anybody in the media, anybody I knew, uh, maybe in Tallahassee, people were talking about it, who put me on to Marco Rubio. And uh, you you said Charlie Chris would not win. And in fact, that what Roger, what uh, John Cornyn did might cost the Republicans both the Senate and the governor's race. It didn't. But that was largely thanks to Rubio. Now he's he ran against Trump. I mean, Trump beat the brains in of Jeb Bush and Rubio. But now Marco's back running this. First of all, you think he's going to win. And secondly, does he help Trump? Uh, well, I think he does help Trump. Yeah, he won the primary going away. Yeah. Was, wasn't close, which is a good reaffirmation of his position. Uh, it doesn't appear that his running for president, uh, that in running for president, that he sustained any, any uh, damage in Florida. Really? Uh, okay. I, I do think he will win. Part of the problem now for his opponent is uh, his opponent is substantially to the right of the base of the Democratic Party. Although he won the primary, there's not much enthusiasm for him among progressives, shall we say. Uh, we still have the energy of the Democratic Party. But is that because Alan Grayson took the bark off the guy? Is that what happened there? It's a big part of it, sure. Also the fact that he's a former Republican, that his father's a Republican, and so on. Yeah. Now, how are you doing? How, are you, how do you feel about Rubio these days? I like Rubio. I've always liked Rubio. Yeah. I liked him when he was running for president. We're friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just happen to be supporting Donald Trump. Do, do do Trump and Rubio have they sort of repaired their? They they got kind of testy there. Are they or how are they doing together? Do you know? I, my understanding is that they have patched it up. They've had several long conversations that have been fruitful, and now they're on the same ticket. So I have no doubt that Trump would campaign for Rubio if he were asked to do so. The attack in Orlando. Did that affect the presidential race there, or, or in your view? Without any question, because it, it, it brought focus to the issue of Islamic terrorism. And in the gay community, it brought focus to the fact that Hillary will not defend gay people from Islamic terrorists, and Trump will. This really allowed Trump to segue into that messaging, uh, which definitely showcases a more tolerant Republican Party. What's what's Hillary Clinton's best asset in Florida? What what has she got going for her down there? I have to think about that one for a moment. All right. Well, let, 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 I mean, yeah. I, I you know her last name is both a plus and a minus. It is uh, it is uh, you know it mobilizes the base, but she like Trump, she's exceedingly polarizing. Uh, and I should point out that I have been saying for some time. That Hillary's unfavorable ratings would be higher than Trump's by October 1st. I was off by 30 days. She made it by September. <laughs> it is just the beginning. As people learn more and more about her, that she has been able to suppress in the past. Will Trump do well in the debates against her? Will he talk about some of the things that directly to her face that Bernie Sanders was unwilling to do? You know, the, the issues that have driven down her, driven up her negatives? Will he do this? He needs to. I mean, Bernie Sanders uh, ran a very strong campaign, but I think he missed the boat in terms of the areas of her greatest vulnerability. I remember reading in the UK Daily Mail, 
when Bernie Sanders' son, uh, brother, who lives in, in uh, London, uh, called Bill Clinton a rapist. Maybe Bernie should take it, should have taken a cue from his brother. <laughs> well, you think, will Donald, thing, will Donald Trump only, do that? Well, the only thing predictable about Donald Trump is that he's totally unpredictable. <laughs> and why would you telegraph your punches today and tell the Clintonites what you're going to do? Speaking of unpredictable, uh, Trump and other people have talk, said, you know, he's, he's opined that the election could be rigged. You talked about this on C-SPAN. Now the Democrats are talking about it. Of course, they're saying that the Russians are, are hacking, maybe maybe hacking into election uh, election returns, into state state parties, into state secretary of state's offices. It seems a reasonable fear. Do you, you think that's something we should be worried about? No, I think it's nonsense. Okay. The, entire, the entire Russian... Trump narrative is the new McCarthyism. Trump has no relationship with Putin. He's not communicating with Putin. Paul Manafort uh, is despised by Putin because he pushed Ukraine into the European Union. No, Russia's candidate, the candidate of the oligarchs around Putin, is Hillary Clinton. She sold them control of our uranium production, <laughs> among other things. She's the one who's done errands for Putin's inner circle and returning for massive contributions. What did Trump mean when he said rigged then? Does he mean the press coverage? What What's he talking about? Uh, there? He's talking, I think he's talking about two things. Uh, there's a distinct difference between voter fraud and election theft. Voter fraud uh, is when people who are not registered a vote or people who are, non, are unqualified to register a vote or people who are dead and still on the rolls have somebody, somebody votes for them. Uh, or someone votes multiple times. The left says that's a non-existent problem, literally does not exist. That's incorrect. It is not as widespread as some think. It may be somewhat more limited. And then there's the issue of election theft. That is the manipulation of computerized voter machines. We have a study from Stanford showing how it was done to Bernie Sanders in 12 states. We have, we have a study from... Uh, from Princeton by Professor um, Appel. It shows how easily the machines are rigged. There's a CBS investigative report on how easily the machines are rigged. All the techies insist these machines are easy to rig. So the argument from the president and from the Clintons is depend on their integrity and their, and their morality not to do that. They'll do anything. The Clintons would steal a hot stove. So, yes, I think that that is a real danger. I think the machines have been manipulated by both parties at the state level in various races and that it can happen again. Claire, Hillary Clinton back in, uh, I think it was 1991 or 92, the Super, Jan the Super Bowl, you know, and after that, when Bill Clinton was first running for president, talked about this um, vast right-wing conspiracy. Yes. And at the time, I knew Arkansas politics. It was a small conspiracy. It wasn't right wing. It was former Democrats who couldn't stand the Clintons. But there is a now a, <laughs> an anti-Clinton network. And I guess I'm asking you, are you would you say that you're the you know, are you the presiding chairman of the vast right wing conspiracy when it comes in the Clintons minds? Uh, see, I don't think there is a vast right-wing conspiracy. What there is is a rise of conservative alternative media that did not exist in the 1980s. I'm more concerned about 
the vast left-wing conspiracy. You know, the network of CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, the people who have the New York Times among the worst, the Washington Post, the worst newspaper in America, uh, turning a blind eye to the Clinton Foundation where you have egregious scandals that are yet unreported by anybody. So she's right. There is a vast conspiracy, but it's on the left, not the right. Um, all right. Roger Stone, as always, thank you for your time. So I'm here talking to Mayor Bob Buckhorn of Hillsborough County, Florida. He was the mayor of Tampa. He is the heart of the battleground state of Florida, which we're uh, talking about this week. So, Mayor, I wanted to ask you, first of all, Secretary Clinton, whom you've endorsed, was in Tampa today. What is uh, Secretary Clinton's aim with Florida? Because we've seen the polls tighten since uh, Labor Day has come and gone. We have, Alexis, and, and that's not surprising given the uh, the history of Florida and particularly the I-4 corridor, uh, where Tampa is literally ground zero where presidents get picked. Um, this is a battleground state. It is very much purple. Um, and so I anticipated, and I think a lot of us did, including the Clinton campaign, that the, the numbers would tighten up over the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm still confident that uh, at the end of the day, uh, President, soon-to-be President Clinton will win the I-4 corridor. Um, she was at the University of South Florida today. I had an opportunity to uh, be one of the folks that introduced her. Um, there were about 1,600 people there. Fire marshal had to close the doors. There were so many folks there. Um, and, you know, she talked about some of the things that, that – certainly as a mayor, Alexis, resonate with us. And I think I speak for a lot of America's mayors in saying uh, mayors need a friend in the White House, and we need a federal government that is our partner, that's not an obstacle. Um, things have changed drastically under President Obama in a positive sense um, in terms of you know helping us with infrastructure issues, uh, clearing the way for you know, permitting um, activities. And, and we have found this administration to be very, very supportive of us. And we're looking forward to even more uh, support moving forward from the Clinton administration. One of the things that's interesting about Hillsborough County is uh, that since I think it's 1960, no candidate has won Florida without winning Hillsborough County. And we know that President Obama did it twice. We know uh, President George Bush did it twice. Uh, what is different in 2016 about Florida and the dynamics of this race? Um, and I'll just give you a hint. When I ask people this question, what they tell me first off with a period after it is Donald Trump. Do you think that's right? I think that's partially right. I mean, I think he has um, proven to be self-destructive self and so divisive uh, that in an area that we refer to as I-4, which is literally a petri dish for America. And I say that in the sense that, that we look like America in all of our shades and ethnicities and genders and orientations and the gods we worship. It is the perfect uh, starting point for most commercial marketing accounts. They will come here to test their products and test their ad campaigns in the I-4 corridor because if, if they can succeed here or if a candidate can win here, they can win in America. And so um, I think Donald Trump has been a part of that. Um, I think the other part of it is the growth of our Hispanic population, uh, particularly the growth of Puerto Ricans uh, coming from both New York and from the island that are now residing in um, the, the I-4 corridor um, 
in, in Hillsboro in particular, um, has Puerto Ricans have become the largest Hispanic minority um, in the area. And so I think the demographics are different. Um, I think the dynamics are definitely different. I think Trump's anti-Hispanic rhetoric has really um, helped to cement that uh, and probably will uh, render the Republicans at a national level uh, a, a non-presidential party uh, moving forward for the next probably decade. Uh, but it's different than it was, and I ran Hillsborough in 1996 for then-President Bill Clinton. Um, you know, the dynamics are different, and Trump certainly um, helps make our job a lot easier. One of the things that we look at with is uh, voter registration. You've been mayor since 2011, I think it is. Uh, you have uh, currently about 317,000 registered Democrats. You have slightly fewer Republicans, 259,000. But a lot of no-party affiliates, meaning yes. voters who don't want to register with either party, which is a phenomenon we're seeing this year. What does Hillary Clinton need to do to get those folks who do not see themselves identified with a party to vote for her? Well, that's, a, that's a, an accurate reflection. Uh, the NPAs or independents uh, across the state have risen significantly over the last four to five years. In some counties in, in Florida, they outnumber uh, registered Democrats and Republicans. I think a lot of those are millennials who are frustrated with the system. They're tired of the, the demagoguery. They're tired of the partisanship. They're tired of the inability for Washington to deal with problems in their lives. Um, I think many of our Puerto Rican neighbors um, are registering as independent as well. And so what I think Secretary Clinton has to do is, first and foremost, not be Donald Trump. Um, I think paint a picture of an America that's united, that is diverse, that celebrates that diversity as a strength, uh, that welcomes everybody's contributions and treats everybody with the same inherent value. I think that in and of itself will drive a lot of the NPAs and independents into the Democratic column this time. Now, they may not stay there over the years because they tend to fluctuate. Uh, but I think in this particular circumstances, they tend to be more fiscally conservative, uh, socially moderate. And that is right in the wheelhouse of what Secretary Clinton's whole career has been. Um, but at the same time, juxtapositioned against Donald Trump, who is so divisive um, and paints a picture of America that is bleak and dark uh, versus a more optimistic one, I think gives um, Hillary, um, you know, clear sailing moving forward. The uh, economy is usually an, uh, the issue that voters talk a lot about in presidential years. And Hillsborough County has a really interesting, diverse base. Um, you know, it's got academics, it's got private sector, it, it's got uh, public sector. Um, how has the economy in Hillsborough both changed since President Obama uh, ran last time in 2012? And also, how is it featured in the discussion between Trump and Hillary Clinton this year? Well, that's interesting because, you know, certainly President Obama has lived through and presided over and, and to a large degree um, helped to mitigate the worst recession since the Great Depression. I mean, there was not a state that was hit harder in the country other than perhaps Arizona as a result of this last recession. I mean, we saw, saw home values just plummet. Uh, here in the city of Tampa alone, we had over 4,000 houses in some state of foreclosure or mortgage distress. People were losing their jobs. Companies were, were closing up. And, and to, to know that not only did he survive, but he helped lead us out of that wilderness um, is a tribute to him. Um, but I think what it also has done is 
um, allowed Hillsborough County and Tampa in particular uh, to change its, its economic DNA and to not be as dependent upon the, th- the three-legged stool that used to be uh, the Florida economy. It was agriculture, it was construction, um, it was tourism, um, and we've moved away from that. You know, agriculture and tourism are always going to be a big part of our economy, uh, but we have really diversified the Tampa economy uh, over the last five years, so much so that the Tampa Bay area has led the state of Florida in new jobs being created three out of the last five years. And so the economy is doing better. Our, our city is growing. It's prospering. But that hasn't touched everybody. And, and I think therein is where you see pockets of support uh, for Trump, um, who, whose rhetoric that, that would divide us, it would pit one against each other. And in times of economic uncertainty, Alexis, or times of, of uh, you know, fear at, at the international level, it's always easy to demonize somebody that doesn't look like you. And the last question I wanted to ask you, Mayor, is about enthusiasm. Uh, political scientists in Florida have been telling us here at Real Clear Politics that one of the features of this is about turning out voters that you need to not only Democrats to try to rebuild the coalition that President Obama built successfully, but to get them out. Do you have any concerns that Secretary Clinton and the Democrats supporting her in Florida can do that in Hillsborough County? Well, I mean, clearly there's work to be done. Um, I think the the polls would tell you that. Um, I think to some degree what is missing uh, versus the 08 election um, and the 2012 election is the aspirational component of this, uh, particularly for African Americans. I mean, that was a historic moment. That was a, a... uh, an event that occurred in 2008 that this country has never seen before. And so I think there was just a raw energy and optimism and, and, and hope for a better America as a result of that particular historic election. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton is in a different position. Um, I would have thought that there would be that same aspirational component to elect the first woman president of the United States. Um, but unlike President Obama, who burst onto the public scene um, unfettered, untarnished, unscarred. You know, Secretary Clinton is a woman that's been in uh, the public arena and involved in public battles for 30 years. And so there's always going to be scars. There's always going to be baggage. There's always going to be people who don't like you for whatever reasons, many of which they can't even articulate. Um, so it's, it's a different environment. Um, but I think when it's all said and done, particularly positioned against the Donald Trump, that those voters are going to come home uh, they're going to be enthused to come home. And Alexis, the one thing I have learned over the last three cycles is that data matters, organization matters, turnout matters. And these t- two campaigns, the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign, do it better than anybody's ever done it before. So they're not going to let all this background noise distract them. They're going to go execute on the plan. They know who the voters are. They're going to go find them. They're going to go turn them out to the polls by whatever means necessary. And I think when it's all said and done, I think the numbers are going to be just fine. 